calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serial audiobook Alive, an unabridged podcast of book one in the Generations Trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler. Performed by Emma Galvin. This novel is available in print, ebook, or as a full-length audiobook. For links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or Audible, please visit scottsigler.com slash alive. 18. Bishop and El Safani found the same thing we did. Two long rows of empty, beat-up coffins. Latu's flame flutters out. Bello wraps another strip of flag around the pole as Okereke watches, holding a torch of his own. He uses his to light ours as Bello starts wrapping Bishop's flagpole with a new strip. Latu, O'Malley, and I enter the second room on the right. This one isn't any different. We find a few tiny scraps of fabric, a few broken bits of bone. We count the coffins this time, 24 on each side. If all six rooms are like this, that's space for almost 300 people. So where are they? At the very least, where are their bodies? I stand in the middle of the room, holding the spear as O'Malley and Latu move down the aisle. He checks the coffins on the right, she the left. This room also once had a pedestal, but it's been smashed into a hundred white pieces. Only the flat top remains intact, mostly anyway. Hey, Latu, O'Malley says. That bruise on your cheek, that come from Bishop? She nods, keeps looking in the coffins, one after another. Yes, but I hit him first. O'Malley stops checking. What? How did that happen? I woke up in a room with Johnson and Cabral, she says. The other cradles had dead little kids inside. Even in the torchlight, I can see the hard muscles in her arms. I bet you broke out first. I say, then you broke out the other two, am I right? Latu looks back at me. When I woke up, my cradle was already open, she says. Same for Johnson and Cabral. Our room door was open too. Why did their coffins open and not ours? And how could their room door be open when we had to use the scepter to get out? We wandered the hall for a little bit, Latu continues. Then Bishop found us. Her eyes narrow at the memory. He had the others with him. He rushed at us, like he did with you. Johnson and Cabral ran. I didn't. I wonder if she stood her ground because she was so terrified she couldn't move like me, or because she is actually brave. He rushed you, O'Malley says, 
amazed at the story. That's why you hit him? To keep him from tackling you? Latu shakes her head. No, he stopped before he got to me, like he did with M. He told me I had to join his tribe. I didn't like the way he talked, and I didn't want to join his stupid tribe, so I punched him. She's not brave. She's out of her mind. Bishop is huge, and she hit him? O'Malley starts to laugh. That bruise on his jaw? That's from you? Latu nods. I shouldn't have done it. I didn't think. I hit him, and he hit me back so hard I fell down. I, I don't remember ever being hurt like that before. He asked if I was done fighting. I said yes, and he helped me up. O'Malley goes back to looking inside the coffins, sometimes reaching his hand in and swishing it around, feeling for whatever might be in there. Then what happened, he asks. Latu also returns to searching the coffins. Then nothing, she says. We got into a fight, I guess, and he won. So Johnson Cabral and I joined his tribe, and we wandered all over this stupid place for I don't know how long. I see the torchlight play off her tongue as she licks her dry lips, which reminds me of how thirsty I am. It's so humid in here, my shirt clings to my body. There has to be water somewhere. Bishop hit her, true, but she hit him first. He didn't hit me, or O'Malley. Does Bishop have more control over himself than Yong had? For that matter, Latu hit Bishop. Does she have less control? I already feel connected to her, like we were close friends before the coffins, and we just can't remember it. But if she's that unpredictable, is it smart to trust her? O'Malley finishes with his side of the room and walks back to me. Latu does the same. O'Malley grins at her. Your bruise looks like it hurts, he says. But I bet it was worth it to punch that jerk. She grins back at him. Yeah, it was. We go back into the hall in time to see Bishop and Elsa Fani enter the last room on the left. Latu's torch is already fading a bit, but enough burning cloth remains to see what's in the last room on the right before we have to tie on another greased strip. I look back down the dark hall. Farrar still blocks the way, flickering torches lighting up the scared faces and white shirts behind him. O'Malley, Latu, and I enter the last room. It stinks in here, like it stinks in the hall, and in the rooms we searched. Without a word, Latu moves to the left, O'Malley to the right, each checking the coffins on their sides. Maybe this is the room with water, or maybe there are more weapons to be found. I hear something. O'Malley and Latu hear it too. They stop. Our ears seek out the sound, a scraping, a snorting, the rattle of a coffin wall as a body bumps against it. It's coming from the last coffin on the left. Is it a kid like us, or is it something else? I don't know what to do. I'm frozen once again. So is O'Malley, the torchlight sparkling against the whites of his wide eyes. Latu slowly creeps forward toward the sound. We should go get Bishop, get more circle stars. I should say something, but my mouth doesn't want to work any more than my feet do. She's five coffins from the last one, then four. O'Malley moves to stand next to me, the long knife held out in front of him. Three coffins, then two, a deep snort. That sound, it's not a kid like us. It's not an adult. It's not human. 
Something moves, pops up out of the last coffin. Something with shiny eyes covered in black, greasy hair that reflects the torchlight. And I know monsters are real, because that is a monster. I take a step away. O'Malley takes two. Latu slowly backpedals, her torch angled toward this sudden threat. We look at the monster. The monster looks at us. An old memory flares to life, but not just from what I see. It's also from what I smell. That awful odor that I couldn't identify. It's from when I was little, at school. No, not at school. On a field trip with people from the school. A field trip to a special place. To, to a farm. The awful smell is animal droppings. The black furred thing standing in the coffin? It's not a monster at all. It's a pig. 19. The pig is just tall enough that its head hangs over the coffin wall. It's not very big. It's black, or at least its head is, because that's all we can see. Is that the color of its fur, or is it completely covered in grease and dirt? So hard to tell in the flickering torchlight, which makes the animal's black eyes waver with glimmering reflections. I can't believe it, O'Malley says. That's a pig. I think I've seen one before. Latu keeps backing up until she stands next to us. Em, what do we do? I have no idea. What is a pig doing here? My heart kicks so bad, I feel it in my throat. When that black head popped up, I was sure Spingate was wrong and Iramovsky was right, that monsters were real and one was about to attack us. A farm, O'Malley says. I saw one on a farm. His words are light and dreamy, like the word farm is a discovery to him, a happy memory come to life. Latu leans close to O'Malley without taking her eyes off the pig, which is still looking at us. What's a farm, she asks him. A place where they grow food, O'Malley says. My hunger pangs and pains return all at once, rush back with more intensity than ever before. Food, Latu says. She shakes the torch in the pig's direction. Is that thing food? The tone of her voice is full of want, full of need. Yes, O'Malley says. His voice doesn't sound dreamy anymore. It sounds hungry. Yes, pigs are definitely food. The pig grunts. Its right ear twitches. It's staring at me. The pig is food, food that's still alive. I don't know what this animal is doing in here, but it isn't hurting us. If we're going to eat it, it has to die. Hasn't there been enough death in this place already? but we don't know if we'll find food somewhere else. There are 24 of us, so many mouths to feed. Reality is what it is, whether we like it or not. The reality is that we're starving. Before we can eat that pig, someone has to kill it. O'Malley, I say, go get Bishop. O'Malley quietly turns and walks out of the room. Latu nudges me. Em, give me the spear. I'll kill it right now. Do you know how to kill a pig? No, she says. I'll, I'll stab it until it stops moving. She doesn't want to kill the pig, 
I can tell by her voice, but she knows what must be done and she's willing to do it. Wait for Bishop, I say. M, give me the spear before the thing runs away. Latu's yelling spooks the pig, hooves paw at the coffin wall, filling the room with deafening noise. Clack, crack, clack. Behind me, I hear heavy footsteps rush into the room. It's Bishop. He takes one look at the situation, then shouts at me. Em, give me the spear. The pig leaps out of the coffin and into the aisle. It hits the ground running, charges straight at me, squealing so loud it hurts my ears. I thrust the spear out in front of me, more to protect myself than to stab the animal. The little head bobs left, and then the pig is running right, brushing against my left leg as it shoots past, too quick for me to react in time. I turn to give chase and almost drive the spear point into Bishop's chest. He twists at the last moment, so fast, his hand grabbing the shaft as the blade hisses through the empty air, where his heart had been a split second earlier. O'Malley and El Safani have a chance at the pig, but scoot out of its way instead of diving on top of it. The pig scampers out of the room. Bishop yanks the spear from my hands. Two steps take him into the hall. I give chase instantly, my legs finally my own again. I see Bishop start to throw. The image burns into my eyes, my brain, my forever memory. His right arm cocked back, muscles straining the fabric of his shirt, the spear shaft balanced in his hand, the blade tip near his neck, his left hand extended, fingertips pointed down the hall, the straight arm a perfect continuation of the spear's line. His bare chest, sweaty and gleaming in the torchlight, every fiber of him taut and fluttering. He is all the motion that has ever existed. He is a gemstone, sculpted to look like a person, hard and permanent and flawless. His right arm whips forward, driven by the twist of his shoulders and hips. My eyes follow the spear down the hall. It flies fast, far and straight. The tiniest bit of torchlight reaches out, and I see a glimpse of a black furred leg before it is swallowed up by shadow. The spear follows it, vanishes from sight. A squeal of pain echoes from the darkness. Bishop grabs a torch from Bellow. I hadn't even noticed her there. Her or O'Karakee and his flag bag full of oily strips. Then sprints after the pig. El Safani follows him, as does Latu. I glance back down the hall, see Farrar standing still and firm in front of fading torches, see the kids packed in behind him. We're getting too spread out, and everything is happening so fast. We found a pig. What else will we find? Bishop, stop! He stumbles, surprised, then turns and looks at me. El Safani and Latu stop as well, their bodies seemingly desperate to rush down the hall despite what their brains tell them to do. M, I got it, Bishop says. It's dead, come on. He's so excited. He's a bright-eyed little boy on his 12th birthday, and this game was his present, and the best present he could ever imagine. Another pain-laced squeal echoes along the stone walls. The pig sounds farther away. Obviously, it's not dead. Bishop snarls and smiles all at the same time. It's wounded, he says. The best game he could ever imagine just got better. He's coiled so tight, he's almost shaking with intensity. 
I instinctively want to back away from him, point the spear at him in defense, like I pointed it at the charging pig. I force myself to stand firm. M, come on, he says. Let's go after it. He's asking me to come with him. He took the spear, ripped it right out of my hands, but not because he wanted to be the leader. At that instant, he didn't care about what the weapon symbolized. He used it for its true purpose. The spear is for killing. No matter what I tell Bishop to do, I know he's going after that pig. If I tell him to stay, he'll go anyway, and everyone will know my leadership can simply be ignored. That could hurt us even more than thirst or hunger. I have to keep control. I have to keep us united. If people don't have faith in me, we will all lose. Bellow, give half the torch strips to El Safani, I say. Then you and Okariki take the rest back to Farrar and the others. Wait for me there. O'Malley shakes his head. Em, everyone needs to stay together. We can't go chasing around in the darkness. We can't get separated. The others are going to get upset. He's right. People are already antsy. If I leave them with Aramovsky. O'Malley, you go back with Bello, I say. Tell everyone we're trying to get food. I hold my hand toward him, palm up. Give me the knife. He looks at my hand, then doubtfully at Bishop. I should go with you, O'Malley says. Give me the knife, I repeat. Keep everyone calm. O'Malley shifts from one foot to the other. Going after the pig is dangerous, he says. O'Malley, the knife. He hands it over hilt first, scowling at me and Bishop both. I turn to Latu. Go with O'Malley. We'll be back as soon as we can. She shakes her head. No, I'm going with you. I want to be part of the hunt. This is the girl who punched Bishop in the face. I see the same look in her eyes I see in his. She's going to go no matter what I tell her. I'm getting so frustrated. I don't know how to control the circle stars. I don't have time to argue with her, and I can't lose that argument while everyone is watching. If Bishop can ignore me, if Latu can, then what's to stop Visca, Elsa Fani, and the other circle stars from going their own way? You stay at my side, I tell her. You protect me, agreed? Latu nods hard enough to make her hair flop back and forth. O'Malley's face wrinkles in anger. What? Why does she get to go? Because Latu won't do what she's told, and you will. Keep the others calm, I say. I need you to handle them. Okereke finishes handing boy El Safani an armful of rags. Latu grabs one, wraps it around her still burning torch. She does it so fast that she's finished before it's fully aflame. Bishop quickly tries the same move, hisses in pain as fire singes his skin. He sucks at the burned finger, looks at me with eager eyes and nods. We're ready. I nod back. Holding the torch, Bishop heads down the hall, El Safani at his heels. I run after them, Latu at my side. If I look back, I know I'll see O'Malley staring after me, so I keep my eyes forward. I don't know if this is the right decision or not, but the decision is made. The hunt is on. 20. We hunt. I run with the circle stars. 
Torchlight plays off hallway walls lined with patterns and carvings of the usual symbols, but new ones as well. People with shovels, people harvesting crops, people moving things, people working together to build and create. It all flies by as we run, making the tiny images on the walls seem to sprint in the opposite direction. Bishop is out in front, and for this at least, there is no question as to who is the leader. He slows and stops, the rest of us do as well, following his every move. The spear lies on the hallway floor. He picks it up. He has the torch in one hand, the spear in the other. There is blood on the blade. Bishop offers the spear to me. I start to take it, but I'm already holding the knife. I can't carry both weapons, and right now Bishop's ability with the spear is the most important thing. You take it for now, I say. Give it back when we're done. He nods. He doesn't care who is in charge. He's focused on the hunt and nothing else. Bishop hands his torch to Boyel Safani, then kneels and puts two fingers to the floor. He lifts them, looks at them, and we all see what is on his fingertips. Blood, flecked with dirt. We can track it, he says. He heads down the hall. We stay close behind. This is exciting, and that surprises me. I came along to maintain an illusion of control, but my skin feels electric, my senses seem sharp. I don't remember who I am or what I was, but in my heart, I know nothing I did before could possibly make me feel this alive. How can I feel this way? Bishop is going to find this animal and kill it. We're going to cut it up, we're going to eat it. The very thought disgusts me yet killing the pig is something we must do to survive. Bishop runs at a half crouch, eyes fixed on the hallway floor. The pig's blood trail is easy to follow, with a new spluttery streak every few steps. The poor thing must be terrified. We move quickly. The circle stars make practically no noise. My steps seem loud and clumsy by comparison. Girl Elsafani keeps flashing me dirty looks because of it. And Latu isn't that pleased with me either. I don't think they are doing anything special to stay silent. It comes naturally to them. The hallway opens to a wide, round space. Archways line the curving wall, 10, maybe 12 of them. At the far end of the room, barely visible in the torchlight, I see the hallway continue. Maybe up can't go on forever, but it still shows no sign of ending anytime soon. What do we do now? There are only five of us. It will take a long time to look in all these rooms, and if the pig kept going down the hall, we'll lose it if we stopped to check even one of them. I glance at Bishop to see what he's thinking, but his attention remains firmly focused on the floor. I know where it is, he says, then jogs to an archway on our right. We run after him. I glance down as I go. See Latu's torchlight flicker off a thin streak of blood that shows the pig's path as clearly as someone standing there, pointing and shouting, it went this way. I hear the grunt of an animal. I stop in my tracks. That didn't come from up ahead, where Bishop is going. It's hard to tell in this big room, but did that come from somewhere off to the left? Bishop, wait. Latu pauses but Bishop and El Safani either don't hear my order or they ignore it. Latu is looking back at me, torch in hand. 
Her face pleads with me to get going before Bishop leaves us behind. I run to catch up. Bishop pauses at the archway. The stone doors are partially open. They sit at funny angles, like they are broken and will never close again. There's enough space for us to slide through. We enter. Our torchlight reveals a stone dome and the largest room we've been in yet. If I stood on Latu's shoulders while she was standing on Bishop's, I could probably touch the ceiling with my fingertips. In the middle of the room is a circular stone, the flat top about waist high. It's big enough that if I lay flat on it, I could spread my arms and legs wide, and my hands and feet would barely hang over the edges. A grunt and a squeal. No question this time. It came from inside the room. There, against the wall on the other side of the circular stone, the wounded pig. It sees us and starts sprinting madly, racing along the wall's curve in a hoof-clicking panic. Bishop takes a hop step toward it, twists his hips and shoulders, the spear again sails through the air. He misses. The blade sparks when it skips off the stone floor just behind the running pig. The spear clatters against the wall. Bishop roars and sprints at the pig. Elsafani angles left, trying to cut off the animal, while Latu positions herself in the room's narrow opening, blocking any way out. The circle stars didn't communicate with each other. They act as one. Four people who instantly work together like they've done it a hundred times before. I have no idea what to do, so I stay near Latu. The pig pauses, its head flicking side to side as it looks for somewhere to run. Bishop launches himself at it. The pig hops over his outstretched arms and darts away. Bishop grunts in pain when he crashes to the stone floor. The twins rush the pig at the same time, but they might as well be trying to catch the air itself. The solid animal bobs left and right as it slips through the grasp of boy Elsafani. Girl Elsafani snatches at its rear ankles. She grabs the right one, but is yanked off balance as the pig powers along on three remaining legs. She stumbles, trips, and lands hard on her shoulder. The pig barrels straight at Latu and me. Latu is still blocking the exit. She waves her torch back and forth. The whipping flame makes shadows lengthen and shorten, lengthen and shorten. The pig stops, confused by the fire. Em, stab it! Latu screams. Stab it now! The long knife. I forgot it was in my hand. I have to kill the animal. We have to eat. There isn't any choice. The pig glances back at Bishop, who is scrambling to his feet, then at Boy El Safani, who is closing in, then back at Latu. I can almost see the pig make a decision of its own. Better to face the fire than to be trapped in this room. It rushes at Latu. I step between her and it, thrust out with the blade. The pig sees my attack and scoots to its left, so fast. I whip the knife sideways and feel it dig in deep, but it flies out of my grip, spins through the air and clatters on the stone floor. Squealing in pain and terror, the pig launches itself at Latu, slamming into her and knocking the torch from her hands. Latu stumbles backward, grabs the pig in both arms as she falls. Pig legs thrash, trying to find purchase, but Latu has her arms wrapped tightly around the animal's thick middle. Em, help me hold this thing! I move to grab it, but the pig moves faster. It twists its neck and bites down hard on Latu's shoulder. Her scream echoes off the dome roof. 
The pig thrashes its head side to side. Latu's feet kick. She tries to push the pig away, but the animal won't let go. I am on it before I know it, punching and shouting, my fists slamming hard into the solid body, splatting against greasy, stinking fur. The pig scrambles away, hooves clattering on stone. It sprints for the hallway that leads deeper into unexplored areas. In seconds, it is lost in the shadows. It's gone. Latu moans. Her right hand clutches her left shoulder. Blood seeps through her fingers, spreads across her white shirt. I grab her, try to sit her up. Latu, are you okay? A stupid thing to say, but I don't know what to do. Blood is everywhere. Her face is a scrunched wrinkle of agony. Her lips curl back, and she forces her words through clenched teeth. Go get it, she says. Kill it. I try to see how bad her wound is. I'm staying with you. Her eyes pop open, go wide with sheer fury. Em, kill it before it gets away. Bishop stumbles past us. He's limping, favoring his right knee. The knife is in his hand. I look back through the broken archway doors. A fading torch lies on the floor. In the fluttering flame's light, I see boy Elsafani trying to help girl Elsafani to her feet. She's struggling to get up, but her arms and legs seem weak and uncooperative. Bishop limps off after the pig. He doesn't have a torch. He's going to get lost in the darkness. Latu's bloody hand locks down on my wrist. Em. I'm okay, just go. I grab her torch from the floor and scramble to my feet. I chase after Bishop. It's not hard to see where he's going. A trail of pig blood lines the way. The gleaming liquid looks more black than red under my torch's glow. I see him up ahead, limping along. Bishop, stop, come back, Latu's hurt. He keeps going, taking two steps with his left foot for every one with his right. His bare feet slap against the blood-covered stone, leaving red-black footprints that mark his path. Sometime in the past few hours, I don't know when, he took off his socks and left them behind. Bishop, stop! He does, and whirls toward me. His face is something I barely recognize, a mask of insatiable rage. M, it's getting away. Either come with me or give me the torch so I can go on my own. Alone? He's not thinking clearly. He's too consumed by his anger, his lust for the hunt. Right now, all that matters to him is catching the prey. That is more important than staying with the group, more important than Latu, more important than me. He holds the knife in his right hand, down low, close to his thigh. He thrusts his left hand toward me, fingers outstretched. He wants the torch. I'll go in the dark if I have to he says. He's gone mad. I know I should go back to Latu, get her to the others, but I can't leave Bishop now. I can't. If he goes alone and something happens to him, I would die. I'm coming with you. I jog ahead of him down the hall. He limps along, his face a snarling scowl of total focus. If I can't talk him out of it, at least I can try to keep him safe. The hall is the same as before, with carvings lining the walls. We pass archways both open and closed, but the blood trail enters none of them. Bishop doesn't even look at me. He is obsessed, controlled by the thought of chasing down that pig. 
There is something basic about Bishop that excites me, that makes my soul shake. A word comes back to me from my days in school. Primal. That's what Bishop is. Primal. Whatever he did to his leg is beginning to ease. He starts running left, right, left, right, although he winces and dips a little each time his right foot slaps down. He picks up speed. I almost have to sprint to keep up with him. The blood trail is thinning out. No, Bishop says, the word full of loss. If we lose the trail now, we might never find it. My torch is starting to flutter. It's almost out. Soon, we'll be in darkness. And Bishop either doesn't notice or doesn't care. We can't be that far behind, he says. It's lost a lot of blood. It will slow down soon, then crawl away somewhere to die. There is no doubt in his voice. He knows exactly what he's doing. But if he's really like me, like Bello and the others, he's only 12. How can he be such an expert? Bishop, I can barely even remember what a pig is. And you know how to hunt one? He looks up from the blood trail, glances at me without breaking stride. What's a pig? The animal we're chasing. He shrugs and returns his focus to the hallway floor. Realization hits home, and with it comes a shiver. Bishop doesn't know how to hunt a pig. He knows how to hunt. I don't think he cares what we're after, as long as he catches it. The trail stops. Bishop looks around frantically. Em, help me find the blood. There has to be more here somewhere. I drop to my knees, holding the fading torch close to the ground. It's more glow than flame now. I'm going to be in the dark again. Ahead and to the right, something catches my eye. An archway, stone doors sealed tight. But at the bottom, I see a wide black spot. Bishop, look. I crawl forward, stick the torch into the blackness. Yes, it's a hole. A hole streaked with blood. Bishop dives to the floor and starts crawling through. He grunts and growls, trying to force his body into the hole. The sounds he's making? If I closed my eyes and just listened, I don't know if I could tell the difference between him and the pig. Bishop, stop it. You won't fit through there. I can't see his head anymore. His shoulders seemed jammed. His bare, bloody feet push at the floor. He wiggles and thrashes. Then his shoulders slide through, and he's gone. Em, get in here. I slide the torch into the hole, then follow it. I crawl through easily, grab the torch and stand. Bishop's white shirt is in shreds. He pulls it from his broad shoulders and tosses it aside. His sweaty, hairless chest gleams in the torchlight. I'm consumed by an urge to reach out, to touch his skin, to see if his muscles are really as firm as they look, to trace a finger along his collarbone. I shake my head try to clear my thoughts. What's wrong with me? Why would I want something like that? Something shameful. The pig, Bishop's obsession with it, that's what I have to focus on. The torch sputters. Bishop and I watch, helpless, as the light flutters out completely. All is black, just like the coffin, just like when I was trapped and that thing was biting me. We're going to die here. Stuck in the darkness, I hear my own breathing so fast, but I feel like I'm not breathing at all. 
My chest is tight, and no air is coming in. It's not fair. I fought my way out of the dark once already. I can't go without light. I can't, I- M, open your eyes. Can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I'm trapped in the dark in a coffin where no one will come save us and mom and dad abandoned us and left us to die, left us alone. I have to. Strong hands grip my shoulders, warm hands, hands gritty with dirt and slick with sweat. M, calm down. It's Bishop, talking to me, holding me. I draw in a big, slow breath, and this time, I feel the air going deep. That's better, he says. Now open your eyes. I didn't even know they were closed. I open them, expecting endless, mind-numbing dark. And I'm surprised that there's enough light to make out the shape of Bishop's face. He's close, close enough to kiss. He lets go of my shoulders. He points to his right. At first, I don't understand what I see. It looks like a wall with hundreds of little bright spots, like tiny glowing jewels. But it's not a wall. It's a mass of curved bars, twisting in and around each other. There is depth to it. The bright spots, they aren't jewels. They are spaces, showing light coming from the other side. Bishop walks to the strange wall. I follow him. They aren't bars. They are plants. Dead wooden stems with rough bark, each as thick as my wrist. Here and there I see a few brittle brown leaves. Some withered stems grow along the floor, reaching into the room as if they sought sunlight, and finding none simply died. I grab one of the curving plants, feel the rough bark against my skin. I give it an experimental shake. It barely moves. The stems have grown together fused with each other into an impenetrable weave that might as well be a cage. It's so thick I can't quite see all the way through it. Whatever lies beyond looks like a big, brightly lit space. Bishop, what is this? He shakes his head. I'm not sure. The word that comes to mind is a thicket. Do you know that word? I don't. It means nothing to me. The same way pig meant nothing to him. Bishop kneels, hands exploring the stems. I see white spots among the brown. I kneel next to him and take a closer look. Some of the stems have been sliced through. The spots are pale wood that lies beneath the bark. He touches a severed branch. I don't get it, he says. If someone cut through this, why cut so low? That trip to the farm. Something about that memory flares to life. A man, an old man, wearing a funny hat, talking to me. No, to us, to the class. Something about what a pig can eat. No, cut, I say, nod. The pig did it, Bishop. As if to confirm what I said, Bishop reaches in a little farther, touches another gnawed bit of white wood. When he pulls his fingers back, there is blood on them. We both see it at the same time. The gnawed branches outline a half circle of empty space, a tunnel that leads deeper into the thicket. Bishop looks at me. If the pig made it through, so can we, he says. He doesn't ask for permission, doesn't wait to hear what I think. 
He lies flat, and he starts in. You have been listening to Alive, book one in the Generations trilogy. Written by Scott Sigler, performed by Emma Galvin. Produced by Adrian Galvin and engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Follow Scott on Twitter and Instagram, where his handle is at Scott Sigler, S-C-O-T-T-S-I-G-L-E-R, one word, or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. Theme music is the song Unseen Horrors by Kevin McLeod. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.